0: and welcome to the Law Down Under Podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application, and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. On this episode of the Law Down Under Podcast, I'm joined by one of Australasia's leading sports lawyers, Aaron Lloyd, as we discuss the topic of the law of sport. Now, it's a lengthy podcast. Um, It's not because we get into, because we just don't get into a real deep granular level of the law and its application to sports. Uh, There just really wasn't the scope for doing that in this podcast. What we decided to do was cover a more general discussion which would act as a really good, I guess, introduction to someone who's either considering becoming a sports lawyer, wants to learn more about what sports law entails, or is already a sports lawyer and wants to have a better understanding of some of the more policy levels surrounding the main key topics that involve sport, both at an international, national and grassroots level. I found it a absolutely thoroughly interesting discussion, uh, and I got a lot out of it, and I'm sure you will too. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. Today, I am very privileged to be joined on the podcast by Aaron Lloyd. Aaron is a partner in the Litigation and Dispute Resolution Division of Minta Allison Rudd-Watts uh, in Auckland. He specializes in trial advocacy, white-collar crime, and regulatory affairs. He also does a lot of employment work and one of his specialist areas which we are going to discuss today is that of sports law. Aaron is recognised as one of Asia Pacific's top sports lawyers and recently received the Best Lawyers Award of the Year award this year in 2023. For sports law, he has affiliations with several esteemed organisations, including the Legal Research Association, the American Bar Association, the Auckland Medico Legal Society. He serves on the panel uh, of counsel for the Sports Tribunal in New Zealand. Aaron is an experienced advocate, having worked with leading counsel in the United Kingdom, the United States of America, Asia, and and numerous cross-border white-collar crime matters. He continues to advise on sports to sports organisations and athletes on a wide range of issues in New Zealand and overseas. He regularly shares his views, some of which uh, receive a a little bit of uh, commentary in themselves, critical acclaim, on sports matters across several platforms, including Twitter, LinkedIn, and his commentary is often sought by mainstream media outlets. Aaron has and continues to be the trusted uh, legal advisor to a number of the top international rugby unions. Aaron, welcome. Thanks for joining me on the podcast.
1: Oh, thanks, Chris. It's a privilege to be here.
0: It's really good. Hey, now we're going to dive into sport um, and, uh, you know, not in a uh, sports cafe type style because we are going to talk about sports law. Uh, Aaron, look, let's start with asking what I think is a very big question, and that is why is sport important? Why, why does anyone care about it?
1: I, I think there are two answers. I think one is the emotional, personal answer, and the other is the commercial answer. So the emotional, personal, personal answer, I think, is sport. One, sport's good for us. So for those... for. Yeah. For those of us who are participating in sport, it's good for us physically. It's good for us. Increasingly, we understand it's good for us from a mental health perspective. Yeah. Um, so people want to participate. People want to do sport, if you like. Um, they also want to watch it partly because they enjoy watching what they do, but partly also because there's a sort of cultural tribalism, a community association with sport. Um, in some instances, sport still provide provides actual physical community engagement, you know, the local club, local sports club, local squash club, the local rugby club, whatever it is. And then on the other side, of course, it's, it's become increasingly commercial, uh, sports, big business, you know, billions and billions of dollars are spent and generated by the sporting industry around the world. So accordingly, it's become important in that respect as well.
0: Look, you know, it, it, you know, as you know, humans we're, we're social creatures. Sport plays a, a vital role in uh, maintaining social adhesion, uh, etc. It, it, it occupies a quarter of our news every night. Um, it, it really is such an important point. And I mean, for, for 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 anyone who really wants to see how important it is, just to turn up on any Saturday morning at any sports field and and just see um, families children, you know, just how much commitment is put into it. And that's even, you know, at basic grassroots level. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with everything you've said about it. Now, um, it's an important matter. Uh, it needs to be organised and, and regulated to a degree um, so that uh, everyone's expectations of a critical pillar of sport, and that is sport is fair, Um is maintained, let's go to like a really high level before we start drilling down into, I mentioned grassroots before, right down to, you know, sort of neighbourhood sport. Um, At a high level, there's a couple of organisations. One of them is uh, the Olympic, uh, uh, International Olympic Committee, the uh, IOC. Um, What role does that committee have in sport?
1: So the IOC's ambit really is around... Um, well, effectively the focal point is running the Olympic Games, both the mm-hmm. Summer Olympics and the Winter Olympics. Um, and, and, and in doing that, it creates a sort of an umbrella federation, if you like, that all of the sports that wish to compete in the Olympic Games become members of. So yeah. all of their international federations become members of the International Olympic Committee, the International Olympic Federation, if you like, one of a better way to describe it. But Really, the IOC becomes the focal point for a number of sports which we sort of know as olympic sports right so mm. the you know athletics swimming you know judo there's a lot of these sports which you know the most prominent examples of them are when we watch them every four years at the olympics and yeah. in, in 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 the winter area you know the, it's the sledding, it's the skeleton, it's the skiing, it's all those sorts of things. So the Olympic Federation or the Olympic, International Olympic Committee really serves as that umbrella organisation for a lot of those individual sports to then be a member of and participate in the Olympic environment.
0: Yeah, and of course, you know, winning or succeeding at the Olympics can not only change an athlete's life, but it can actually uh, alter a whole nation. I mean, suddenly, um, if we take New Zealand, for example, you know, we win some medals in canoeing, um, all of a sudden we're very proud about canoeing and, and we're proud as a nation. So, so, so winning on the Olympic stage does have uh, significant well-being effects uh, right through uh, to, to, to the nation that's represented.
1: Oh, look, for sure. But it also depends on how you define winning, right? So mm-hmm. one of the debates in sport, in particular one of the debates in sport funding, is how do you fund sports? Well, we historically have and still continue to do so, fund sports according to uh, ability to get medals. Yeah. Uh, at the Olympic level, right? Um, and that's one definition of winning, right? So mm. unquestionably, you know, if, we, if, we, if we're if having athletes meddling, they're winning, and that's good for, as you say, it's good for the sport, it's good for the psyche of the nation and so forth mm. and so on. But participation in the Olympics in and of itself, of course, is also winning, right? I mean, not mm. everyone gets to go. I'm never going to mm. be an Olympic athlete. I never have been. Mm. I never will be. Um, the percentage of people who are... Um, at the level required to be able to compete at the Olympics is pretty small. Um, So of course for some of the smaller sports in particular, just having someone go to the Olympics, represent them, seeing them on the television wearing the silver fern, New Zealand flag, flapping around, um, that in and of itself can be quite an uplift for sport as well. So, you know, yeah, winnings important and success is important, but I think, you, you know, it's all partly depends on how you define success.
0: Now there's two other, which I'd like to go over with you, two other. I guess let, let's just call, well, one of them's a, a you know, a captive international competition that's the commonwealth games and then we have individual sports world world championships or world cup events let's just talk about the the commonwealth games i mean the commonwealth games um certainly not as large or as important as the olympics but it's something that both new zealand and australia um compete in so it does have a a, a prominence there and Again, I think your comments, are, are, you know, would be the would they be the same around winning Commonwealth Games medals? The importance to New Zealanders in that space?
1: Oh, a hundred percent, and I think for the countries who compete at the Commonwealth Games, that becomes a both a, a, a goal in and of itself to go to the Com Games mm-hmm. to do well, um, potentially medal, but also becomes part of the overall program heading towards the Olympics. In some respects, the Commonwealth nations you know, get a trial run uh, in the off cycle, if you like. The Olympics for a lot of the Commonwealth sports, not all of them. The, the match of Comms Commonwealth Games sports to Olympic sports isn't hundred percent, obviously. Mm. Um, you know, some sports, netball, for example, um, Com Games probably becomes the pinnacle alongside perhaps the World Champs um, because it's not at the Olympics. But other sports, rugby, for example, sevens now both at Com Games and the Olympics, so that, that in. Oh, A lot of the core sports, you know, swimming, athletics and so forth are present in both. Com Games isn't the only one, of course. You've got the Pan Pacific Games and you've got the Asia Pacific Games. And and outside of our sort of awareness, probably, there are other um, multi-year tournaments that that, that rank up there. And of course, for all athletes, their world championships are incredibly important and you know, and you see that in particularly sports like cycling and rowing, right? Where mm. the world champs are the best of the best, and if you win, if you're a world champion, that's quite something. Um, you know, again, Olympic champion, world champion, Commonwealth champion—those are all titles that you know athletes. I think who get them are very, very proud of.
0: Yeah. Now, look if we if we thought about that sort of tree structure, we mentioned the um, uh, the International Olympic Committee. Uh, it will be working with um, individual sport national uh, international federations, and and I think that's a good segue to talk about world cups and how they're organised because it's those international uh, sporting federations that are responsible for organising their respective sporting code uh, world champs world cup, um, and of course, there's a number of them. You know, the more famous ones that we we hear about are uh, you know, FIFA for um, football uh fiBA for basketball uh world rugby for 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 rugby union etc cetera uh how are those organizations uh, how what sort of governance structure do they generally have and you know where where does uh you know what role could, can lawyers play in those those organizations or even the international olympic um committee you know?
1: yeah so look As I say, the IOC really focuses around the two Olympic Games, the Summer and the Winter Olympics, and becomes, one, an organisation body for those events, but two, a body that all of the sports that wish to participate in those events have to be part of from. Mm -hmm. And then they set certain rules and will influence actually the rules of the the sports, uh, particularly around things like selection, eligibility, uh, um, uh, doping, all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then you're right, you really look at the top of the tree uh, as the international federations for the sports, and they're effectively member organisations. <laughs> so um, the international federation will be made up of all of the national bodies for that sport around the world. You know, oftentimes in excess of 100, uh, a hundred uh member. Uh, members of those international federations. Or basketball in excess of two hundred. Right, yeah. there we go. Yeah. Um, you know, and and those federations, those international federations, will be formed by and made up by representatives from all around the world. Now now some of them have different um, uh, constitutional and voting structures. Some of them might give um, you know, more votes or more positions to some some of the bigger or more established um are national federations. Um, some of them might be purely democratic, one country, one vote kind of thing. Mm. Um, but they'll have their own structures of their own councils and their subcommittees, and they'll set. Generally speaking, the international federations will set the laws of the game or the rules of the game um, mm. for whatever sport it is. Um, so the sporting rules, the on-field or on-court sporting rules, um, and those will get promulgated out. And then the national unions at each le- each level, New Zealand, you know, the New. New Zealand example of you know, basketball or football mm. or rugby or whatever it is, uh, will generally then take those international rules and regulations, so not just the on-field rules, but also the regulations around how the, the sport, sport more broadly will be managed um, and then implement them in either the inter- international versions or in a sort of localised version of those rules. And then those national bodies, New Zealand rugby uh, basketball New Zealand, for example, they will then become the governing body responsible for the sport within their jurisdiction. So within 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 New Zealand.
0: Yeah. So starting at the at the, at that international level. So as you've said, uh, it's made up of uh, member member nations, men, member states. Uh, they generally have um, from an uh, I guess a, an organisation point of view uh, a clear delineated. Split between governance and uh, and operations. So the the, the governance is, is usually with most of these uh, international federations is is on some form of an elected basis. They'll have a president. They'll have a committee. Um, they may even have regional committees sitting in there. Um, uh, but the actual doing side of it, the the execution. Um, there'll be a, there'll be a secretary, a general secretary of some form, or you know, chief executive officer uh, at that international level. Is that followed? That model roughly followed in in national sport, like when we get down to things like the New Zealand Rugby Union, yeah. Basketball New Zealand, Football New Zealand, et cetera?
1: Yeah, look, it is. So generally speaking, you'll have. Um, if you want to divide it, by say, say governance and operations, mm-hmm. the operations will be the employees of the organisation, right? Yeah. Starting with either the CEO or general secretary or general mm-hmm. manager or whatever you want to call um, him or her, um, being the boss, if you like, mm-hmm. and then they will employ a bunch of staff, and the staff will do jobs, and it'll be their actual job, right? Like mm-hmm. their paid day-to-day job. You know, in an organisation like FIFA, mm-hmm. um, will have hundreds, if not thousands, of employees. I would imagine, um, and you're right, all around the world because they'll have sub. Uh, organisations as and well. Or regional offices. Or regional offices or yep. in region, regional uh, organisations. Um, uh, and then, yeah, when you get to the local level, generally mm. speaking, that's right. I mean, it depends on the sport, right? Because, mm. because oftentimes you'll still... <laughs> find too that there's a distinction between paid and volunteer, between the operational staff and the governance staff. Oftentimes, and certainly in New Zealand at least, and in fact around the world in my experience, the governance people uh, involved in a sports organisation will often be unpaid and often be volunteers, even at, uh, uh, amongst the most high profile and perhaps wealthier sports, mm-hmm. um, whereas your operational team are your day-to-day employees or are employed by the organisation to make the sport work.
0: Yeah, and and I guess that then flows down to when you get to the more local associations that are members of the of the the national association. If uh, so, um, when we've got a, a national organisation, say based in Wellington for a sport, doesn't matter what the sport is, well, they could be based in Auckland, wherever they're based. They're going to their membership will be regional
1: Correct. associations, yeah, or clubs, or, or clubs. It, it depends yeah. on the you know for for a lot of the a lot of the sports will have will go into regions or zones. So you'll often hear, hear the re- reference to zones. I think you know both mm-hmm. basketball and rugby league often refer to zones for their uh, regions, and then below them there'll be um, the sort of either the sort of city-based type of structure or club-based structure, but eventually getting down, and and, and it's, a, it's a cascade, right? The International Federation, National Federation, and then whatever the structure is underneath it. Mm. And essentially the same pattern does fall through, even down to your local club, right? Your local yeah. club will by and large be almost... Uh, almost all volunteers, but maybe they hire a groundsman or maybe they hire a caretaker or maybe they hire a bar person or something like that so even at an operational level, your michael club might have your local club might have one or two employees mm. um, or contractors um, or it might be entirely Volunteer based, but that's generally the structure flows down, and local clubs are members of perhaps the regional affiliated to the regional organization or affiliated direct to the national body. Then the national body is affiliated uh, to the international federation, and that's how um, we have this sort of slightly um, uneasy but at work structure where a sport is essentially governed by one group of people in a sort of linear fashion from the international federation all the way down to your local club. Yeah. Then occasionally in sport, of course, you get rebels who go, actually, we don't want to... um play cricket according to the way the International Cricket um, Council has said we have to play it and you have the Kerry Packett World Series type attempt at breakaway and then that eventually comes back into the cricket family or, you know, in rugby we've had a couple of attempts at breakaways and eventually they've sort of come back into the family, so to speak. And from a legal perspective, it's really interesting, right, because, you know, why why do we think one Necessarily, organ- and one, necessarily, one organisation should control that sport and all its variations all around the world. And part of the answer is that there's some legal structures that sort of make that happen. But part of the answer too is that you know, and you see it with the, these attempts to break away. Inevitably, those breakaways always come back into the fold. Golf's going through it at the moment, right? Between yeah. you know, and golf a, is a fragmented sport anyway. It's, There's no one international federation, although the reality is Royal and Ancient and the PGA have sort of got together to almost create a de facto version of that. Mm -hmm. But the live thing in golf at the moment is a classic example of that, right? You know, what's to stop someone going off and setting up a slightly different version of golf in this case, 54 holes and so forth and so on. You know, and we're seeing that play out. And I don't know, maybe that'll come back into the same one family as well, like a lot of the other sports have or we haven't. But it does lead to that sort of tension sometimes.
0: Yeah, and I, I guess in a way, to a large extent, you know, at that international level, the the international federations, um, uh, the one point they've got is they've got a monopoly. And that is if you want to participate in, um,
1: a world in, champs in or world an champs Olympic champs Games, or the
0: Then you must be a member. Yeah, and okay. those
1: become the factors, right? So the golf yeah. one's a classic example, yeah. right? Which is, um, uh, I don't know what the status is going to be of live golfers who, who mm. might want to go to the Olympics, right? But if mm-hmm. the if it was the case that they couldn't go to the Olympics, then the question becomes: Well, is that a big enough? Penalty or draw card to mean that you're not going to go with the Rebel breakaway. In rugby league and in rugby union, it's been things like, like international test matches, particularly rugby union, right? Where the mm-hmm. pinnacle of the game is international rugby, right? You wouldn't necessarily say that about rugby league, um, and you wouldn't necessarily say that about some other sports. You know, basketball is just a sport you've had a, 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 a heck of a lot of involvement in. You know, one question there is whether the international game is really the pinnacle of the sport, um, and rugby, unquestionably it is. So one of the ways in which I think the World Rugby, World rugby um, formerly the International Rugby Board, um, are able to maintain a pretty comfortable control over the game all around the world is ultimately everyone's wanting to look up to the same thing, which is international rugby. So that's the carrot they've got, which means they don't necessarily need the stick.
0: Yeah. And there's also um an issue of funding, but we might come back to that in a second. Um going more local, you know, here in New Zealand and Australia and, and just dealing with national sporting organizations, um, how are they governed? Like what what's the let's we, we're gonna talk a bit about law here like what's the the way in which they regulate themselves how are they set up i mean are they yeah, yeah. are they companies are they charities are they partnerships what what's the, the the general mode
1: yeah most sports organizations are incorporated societies under the New Zealand under New Zealand law so yeah. in our structure um, which means again they're member organizations made up of individual members who pay subs, you know subs usually to join and they're, they therefore they have an elected committee from the membership right so most mm. sports clubs are incorporated
0: Incorporated societies. Okay, and how, how is an incorporated society um, like what are their rules? Where, where do you find them?
1: Yeah, so they set their own rules. Each incorporated society is required to have a constitution or a set of rules, which then gets published and is available online. If you go to the um, MB website, it allows for you to search the company's register. Another register you can search yeah. is the incorporated society's register. So the rules for all incorporated societies should be posted up on that. And you can, so if you want to go and join the local football club, yeah. um, you go and Pay your sub. You become a member of the football club. As a member, you've got certain rights and obligations under that football club's constitution. That constitution is a is is a is a set of rules um, passed uh, in accordance with the Incorporated Societies Act, mm. um, and so that's the structure, generally okay. speaking. And
0: and are the, these rules, you know, when they were incorporated, let's say we've got a you know football club, soccer club, um, set up in in nineteen. 19- Fifty-two yep. uh, had a constitution there. Is, is this set in stone? Is that a, a good approach? Is it, you know? It's what, what what should clubs or or even you know larger organis- sporting organisations be doing around their their constitutions? Yeah, we're
1: sort of going through a bit of a forced refresh actually at the moment because we've had some new incorporated societies legislation passed in the okay. last couple of years, which is um, essentially requiring. Um, sports organisations, or if not requiring them, making it good practice to go and revisit your constitution and put in place a sort of more modernised and newer one, um, which includes things like dispute resolution clauses and how you're going to deal with elections and appointments and meetings. And, you know, I, I still see um, sports clubs, constitutions that talk about postal votes and yeah. stuff, right? I mean, right. You, you know, the idea yeah. of internet technology or or one of the things that COVID um, yeah. kicked out, right, was, um, all, we've got all these constitutions that require in-person meetings for everything, for, yeah. for annual general meetings, for special general meetings, for perhaps committee meetings for the for the incorporated society's board, or, or effective board. Um, you know, so we're seeing a lot of modernising. And if you're a, if you're out there and you're part of a club, one of the things you want to sort of think about is, well, what does our constitution look? Does it look like? Is it was it typed on a typewriter mm. uh, in the nineteen fifties? Yeah. And if so, do we need a bit of a shake up and a redo it? And look, Sport New Zealand. Which is the um, government body uh, responsible largely for the community sport aspect, and they've they've got their associated entity at High Performance Sport New Zealand. But Sport New Zealand publishes publishes a lot of really helpful community guidance around what your constitution might look like and other other things as well, things like health and safety and bits and pieces. So that's a pretty good resource to go to if you're in that space.
0: Oh, absolutely. So Sports New Zealand, we'll come back to high-performance sport in a moment, but Sports New Zealand is a um, state-funded organisation based in in Wellington, uh, which is there to um, promote um, sport in New Zealand through education and resources. And I think you're right, absolutely, on their website, there's, there's great resources to, that allow clubs and and. Uh, associations and even national uh, associations to be able to um, uh, better organise themselves, because running a sporting organisation isn't an easy business. No. I mean, you 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 see where it goes wrong. I mean, yeah. you, you you often get dragged in to help out when yeah. there's problems
1: yeah. at all sorts of levels. Right. Yeah. So you know, this week alone, I'm doing work with the national federation. I'm doing work with a local federation, and I've just finished um, some judicial processes around club sport um, uh, this week. And and look, one of the reasons is because passion runs high in sport. Um, People perceive um, uh, unfairness and uh, when they perceive unfairness they can take it when it's a passionate area that they're interested in it becomes quite emotional so i think you know one of the, you know you asked a question a while ago which i didn't answer which was you know how can lawyers get involved in that sort of organizational structure and stuff like that um i think it's really important for any sporting organization whether it's a, a you know the local club or whether it's an international federation, to have some really clear rules around what members' rights and responsibilities are, because then you can use that as your template to go back to. You need to make sure you've got um, fair, open processes around electing committees and decision making, so that if people don't like it, they can vote them out at the next election. You know, um, you need to have some really fair and clear processes around how you're going to run your organisation, because then you can fall back in, in a time of... Crisis or in a time of dispute, you can fall back to those really clear um, processes and say, "Look, we're following the, the, we're following the processes because so much around sports disputes is process driven. Are we following mm-hmm. the right processes? Um, everyone can. Oftentimes, you can get um, different people um, following the same process who reach different decisions. Yeah. Um, but oftentimes in sport in particular when we're looking at disputes, what we're really focusing on is where proper process is followed, and if so, then that's probably generally okay. It's very rare that you're going to get into substantive discussions, and I'm thinking about things like selection disputes or yep. you know, committee votes or things like that. Very rarely will uh intervener, be it a court or a tribunal or a internal disciplinary body, very rarely will they want to get into the substance of a dispute if it's clear that the processes were both clear and properly followed.
0: So I guess, Aaron, there's two skills that are inherent in in good lawyering. Um, one is an interpretive skill, yep. to be able to look at a set of rules, whether they're internal regulations or uh, the organisation's constitution, um, cetera. And to be able to interpret what uh, you know, what the intention is, what what's meant there, and then the second set that's inherent in, in good lawyering is 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 what I'm hearing you say, and that's really around um, process and procedure, you know, meeting natural justice, you know, to ensure that uh, everyone has had a, a fair opportunity.
1: Yeah, and I think overarching both of those, Chris's judgment, right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, objective, objective judgment. So, one of the reasons why sports lawyers um, get called in uh, mm-hmm. to disputes is because they are an objective, skilled um, person, mm-hmm. and the objectivity and to be able to look at things dispassionately is really important. But also, the judgment to be able to look at it in the context of the sport, the context of the na- of 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 what's going on. That's really important as well, because rules on their own are just rules. you've got to put them into context to, to be able to apply them. But look I'd agree I think interpretation mm-hmm. um, a, a, an adherence to process and natural mm-hmm. justice, and contextual objective contextual judgment those would be the three uh, th- thre- three things that I think sports lawyers really need to be able to focus on
0: yeah absolutely and and look I mean in a way, maybe this is a bit of call out to the to our profession is is there's great opportunities that exist. For lawyers to get involved in sport and make a real positive difference, um, whether it's at their communities or, or beyond. Um, because so much of sport is underfunded and it's driven by volunteers and lawyers have a, a great skill set where they can add a lot of value to that and make a real positive difference. I mean, you know, I, I know from your perspective uh, and also from mine, you know, we've both got a lot uh, out of being involved in sport. Um, it's, it's a way in which we can get involved and and, and really make it make a positive difference and 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 look you you actually see it I um, mean you, you you see it on a on a daily weekly basis um, uh, the the type of work that we do a lot of it some some of it is behind closed doors not necessarily in the in the public sphere because we're resolving things that that need to be dealt with at that level um, and then some of it is is, is is more almost granular and and you know deal dealing with a lot of the administration that just has to be done and if it's not done then the wheels fall off the you know fall off the
1: bus. Yeah Yeah. and look and I'd say a couple of things about that first is look I agree with you that sport needs more people volunteering particularly Mm. on the admin and organizational side of things the officiating side of things and if you love your sport whatever your sport is Mm. ask yourself is there a way I can Um, volunteer to get involved because if there is and contribute you shouldn't whether that's through coaching your children's teams or refereeing or umpiring your children's teams if you've got children or whether it's going and volunteering to sitting on a committee to help them make decisions uh, to sit on a judicial panel um, for particularly lawyers right Um, a lot of sports uh, have rules to set up judicial panels to deal with internal sporting issues, either conduct or on-field or off-field conduct issues, having a lawyer to be able to sit on that panel and just help manage that process is really, really helpful. So there's plenty of opportunities to get out there. I, um, uh, well, and, look, and if you want to be a sports lawyer, right, mm. uh, if you want to get into being a sports lawyer, um, getting you got you got to start by volunteering and doing a bit of pro bono stuff. To be honest, because yeah. the in New Zealand the sports industry is not as wealthy uh, as even in Australia, let alone going up into the you know, the states or Europe, um, uh, or a lot of the Asian countries. Which means a lot of the sports organisations around the country can't afford to be paying commercial rates for lawyers to be doing work for them. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's plenty of opportunities to do some either low fee or pro bono work to assist. Uh, either athletes or sports organisations. Couple that with a bit of volunteer work in the sports industry, whether you're refereeing, umpiring, sitting on committees, whatever it is you're doing. If you're a sport, if you're a lawyer wanting to get into sports law, doing a little bit of that is a good way to get a bit of uh, you know, experience and, and and to get a sort of a bit of that judgment, build up a bit of that judgment, contextual, objective, contextual judgment. I was talking about.
0: Yeah, and also understand. I mean, sport in itself. Is its own. Um, I mean, one part of it you could look at as an industry, but it's it's also it's a, its own culture. Yeah, there's Agreed. things about sport that are that don't uh, line up with commercial considerations. You know, there, there are other interests and you know values at stake.
1: Yeah, and, and that's the contextual bit, right? Yeah. That's why I talk about sort of yeah. objective contextual judgment. That's that's the contextual bit. Yeah,
0: and and look here in New Zealand again. You know, you're absolutely right. There's never enough money. Okay. Um, but we're also part of a, uh, a, a South Pacific community or a Pacific community. The, the Pacific, our Pacific neighbours, they have even less money, correct? And, and but they have the same issues that they've got to deal with at a sporting level in terms of um, running their sports. Uh, so there's great opportunities there um, for, for volunteering and yeah, promo work.
1: And, and Chris, for me, right? So when I started doing sports little work. What would be fourteen or fifteen years ago now? I did a lot of um, either volunteer or pro bono or sort of assistance across the board. Now I do less, because a lot of a lot of the work I now do is sort of at a at a, at a sort of higher, more complicated level that's pretty well funded actually. Um, but I still do some right, and in particular, a lot of the now the lower cost or the pro bono work I do will be focusing on. Um, you know, helping the islands with their sport, particularly in rugby, I do a lot of work with um the three Pacific islands that are prominent in rugby, uh almost all of which um out of World Cup cycle anyway is on a on a sort of pro bono or sort of friends basis <laughs> um uh and I you know I also still volunteer in the community, so I referee rugby um both club and and school kid rugby on the weekends. um I get a lot out of that personally. Um, uh, as well as as well, as, as well as it helps me professionally. Unquestionably, that I'm a much better rugby lawyer for being a rugby referee, um, and I I think that is un, unquestionably true. But also, it's a way in which I can contribute to a sport that I love, and I get a lot out a lot out of at a professional level.
0: Yeah, look, um, refereeing. Glad that you raised that. Um, I, I've ha- heard it said at a basketball level, and I'm going to assume the same as um, for for rugby. Is that there's great opportunities for for New Zealanders to get involved in refereeing, um, particularly at an international level, because we, we're perceived to be um, very unbiased and um, and very fair, and uh, so the, the reputation of New Zealand referees is very high internationally across multiple sports. Um, and maybe it's because of our isolation. You know, we're not um, uh, we don't have a lot of neighbours around us. There, there, there's there's not a lot of I, I guess some of the other issues that maybe European nations or, or Amer- you know, American, North American, South American nations have. I mean, what's your perception around um, opportunities for New Zealanders to get involved in refereeing?
1: Oh, look, I think it's unquestionably true um, that New Zealand is sort of bad above their average punch above their weight in sport generally. And mm. I'm sure if, you know, uh, you know, now that you reflect on it, mm. I think officiating is um, the case as well. Right. So Um, the world the appointments for the World Rugby World Cup in France this year have recently been made we've got one two three four officials out of what must be about 25 I think in total from New Zealand going the only country I think with more is England um, the home of rugby (laughs) Um, and you know that in and of itself shows you that we're sort of sort of up there right I mean we are one of the the best rugby nations in the world. So but that's a good example, you know, basketball, football, I, look, I think that's true. I, I, maybe the geographic isolationism helps, but I th- think actually the predominant thing is sport in New Zealand culture is really significant, as you say, 25% mm. of the news every night, uh, mm. sports news. And, you know, and we do well, right? You know, every Olympic Games, New Zealanders are looking for the medals per capita table, right? Because yeah. we want to see how we're doing given how small we are. And generally speaking, we're up there amongst the top 10 every Olympics. Yeah. Um, we do well in sport and both participating and officiating. But look, look, I think that's right. You're still going to be good at it, right? So, yeah. you know, the. The international um, basketball umpires and the football referees and the rugby referees from New Zealand who get to officiate overseas at that top, top level, they've still got to be very good at it. But I think that also speaks to a sort of traditional New Zealand work ethic. I mean, in the law, we hear about it, don't we, when Kiwis and Aussies go to places like London and and so forth, and there's never any question about their work ethic. Um, and I'm sure that's true for officials in sport as well.
0: We talk about um, the role that schools play here in New Zealand in sport. Um, uh, I mean, we, 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 could, we could take any sport. We'll, let's just take rugby, for example. I mean, school rugby is, is, is a big thing to a certain extent, you know, at, at that age group, that teenage years, Possibly much bigger than than club rug, rugby for um, uh, for you know young you know young men, young women who are who are, who are playing sport. Um, how does school uh, sport fit in with the structure that we were just talking about before here in New Zealand?
1: Yeah, so rugby rugby is a really interesting one, right? Because if you're going to be a young if you're going to be a rugby player from the earliest age possible, yeah. you'll start in your club with sort of literally under five. And, you know, four-year-olds, five-year-olds running around in a swarm starting to play rugby, right? Mm-hmm. And um, ripper rugby is the is the starting point. And then you'll work your way up until, until you hit high school age. And then all of a sudden, all the rugby doesn't happen through the club, it happens through the school. Yeah. And for high school, for your high school years, it's all school and not club. Mm-hmm. Um, culminating in, you know, first 15 or 1R, the weight-restricted Um uh, age group um uh, school rugby that we have now, um which is you know you know huge right mm. I mean we have until this year had the one a competition in auckland televised now decision's been made not to televise that by the principals involved in that, but it is an unusual arrangement in rugby where literally all of the governance and all of the control of school of secondary secondary school aged uh, rugby players gets handed over to the schools in the secondary school sports associations, and then once they leave school, it's back to club because we don't have a strong university culture like they do, for, for example, in the United States. Um, so it comes back to club and. Look, my own view is I don't think that's perfect, but I can sort of understand it, right? Because when you're in high school, so much of your life is in and around school that it makes sense for the school sport to be controlling rugby, right? Mm. But it does create difficulties when people leave school because then we have this big drop-off in participation because there hasn't been that consistent club culture going through, so you've got to get people back into club rugby for rugby. Um, other sports seem to manage it differently, right? So basketball and football, you still have a strong club culture going through alongside your school in culture, in a parallel process. In, in a parallel process, yeah. And rugby doesn't do that, and you know, and it's a it's a, a, a for us in rugby, and I do a lot of work in rugby. Probably half of my sports law workers in rugby. Yeah. Um and then the other half is a mix of of, of probably Ten or fifteen different sports, really. Mm. Um, but in rugby, we're, you know, we've we've grappled with this for a while. There was a report done a few years ago now that basically reached the conclusion that New Zealand rugby should try and assert more control over that school senior that secondary school um, period for rugby players. Um, New Zealand rugby have appointed staff in the in the school uh, and uh, age rugby space and are working to develop that a bit more. So that's an evolving beast, if you like.
0: Is, is that for? Uh... Um, high-performance pathway development? Because, I mean, you mentioned five-year-olds playing Ripper Rugby, and it just seems to me that you've got clubs which uh, can uh, play an important role in implementing a national development strategy, particularly around high performance, and then suddenly the schools take over. Doesn't that create a disconnect when you're trying to develop talent?
1: Well, yes and no. I don't think... I don't think the disconnect from uh, club rugby going into school kid rugby mm. at what age thirteen, right? Mm. I don't think that's creating a big problem there because I don't. I don't think anyone is seriously talent spotting twelve year olds uh, in rugby, right? Mm.
0: Um, Although Jonah Lomo got appointed to the All a for the All Blacks while while a schoolboy, right? Right.
1: Yeah. I, I mean,
0: that, I mean, it's a rare example, yeah. you know. It's yeah, a, yeah, but, yeah.
1: but we're still talking senior, yeah. we, you know. You yeah. know, even uh, uh, you know legendary players like Jonah, yeah. Um, you know Jeff Wilson. Um, yeah. Some of these players in the in the All Black space re- really only became prominent in senior secondary school. Yeah. Right when yeah. when Jonah was running around on the flank at Wesley College at yeah. aged fifteen. Right, that's when people started paying attention to him. So look, I don't think the club transition into school is a problem at all in terms of. Um, elite development, but mm. there is a, and it, and it doesn't seem to be a problem the other way around, right? But what you are getting now is this sort of situation where 17 and 18 year olds are coming straight out of school and going into professional rugby. But actually, I don't, to give credit to New Zealand rugby, they're not just focused on. High performance um, development pathway. And in fact, I I would hazard a guess and say that on this topic, Mm. you know, how do we deal with schools controlling secondary rugby and then the need to transition to clubs and Mm. how do we respect both uh, all of the needs and interests around that? I actually think their primary focus is around participation and community and community, not high performance development. High performance development will find a way, right? You know, if you've got a um, phenomenally talented um, uh, a young man or young woman playing mm. rugby at senior secondary school level who's good enough to be taking that next step up. Someone's going to find them. Someone's going to put them into a sub-elite academy. Mm. Um, someone's going to start giving them provincial time uh, in the Farrah Palmer Cup or the MPC. Plenty of school girls playing in the Farrah Palmer Cup, plenty of school kids going into MPC pretty pretty quickly and occasionally, occasionally playing in it when they're still at high school.
0: Yeah, oh, I guess, um, Aaron, if, if, it's, if it's not broke, why well, try and fix it? Like, I mean, if, it, if the system works, um, a large part of it depends on priorities and, and um, policy around these things. I mean, I'll just take football as an example. Um, now, many years ago, I think it was 2018, uh, New Zealand hosted the, the FIFA uh, Under-20 World Cup Okay, and it was a phenomenal event in New Zealand. Amazing to be able to just go and watch, you know, the, you know the future stars of of that biggest sport in the world play, playing here in New Zealand. You know, yep. the I mean, they were young men, um, you know, nineteen, type thing. To watch Portugal play against New Zealand, I mean, it surprised me. New Zealand scored a goal against Portugal. Portugal actually won in the second half with two goals. Um, it just, but the one of the one of the big differences Um, in that particular sport is um, what they call time on the ball. So um, I I read a while ago, I thought it was an interesting statistic, was that a 19-year-old Argentinian representative player for for their uh, age group representative team will have done over 14,000 hours uh, on a soccer ball, you know, literally. Whereas, uh, and I don't know how, how... Football New Zealand comes up with these things where they, they worked out that their players at the same age, be lucky if they've done 7,000 hours. Um, It's just a, it's just a matter of time, you know, on, you know, playing the sport. And and then also, I guess having, you know, all the resources on in Argentina have billions of dollars to throw at football. New Zealand's New Zealand's not the same, and that does make a difference. Look, it's also
1: yeah. it's also a much more complicated picture than that from a socio economic and and um, and even geopolitical point of view, right? So, you know, if you compared in young Indian cricketers to New Zealand cricketers, right, or you mm. compare young Argentinian footballers to New Zealand footballers, or you compare. You know, I don't know, young New Zealand rugby players to Portuguese mm. rugby players, right? Mm. You're just going to have this prevalence of there is just more emphasis and more time spent on those things, right? You know, mm. cricket in India is like a religion compared to what it is here, right? So, you know, young cricketers just spend time, more time playing cricket. I imagine mm. young Argentinian footballers just spend more time playing football. Yeah. Young mm. New Zealand rugby players just spend more time playing rugby. So I think, you know, it's going to be a much, much broader question than just resources within the sporting organisation. It's also going to have some big socio political um,
0: implications, implications
1: and, and questions, right? And and,
0: yeah. and, and it's also a policy issue. So we talked before about sporting New Zealand, and, and you and you also mentioned, um, you know, I guess I guess you'd call it it's associated entity high performance sport. Um, I think they just sit in the same office, but they've just you know they've got different rules. General manager across both of them. Now that's funded by New Zealand. We've got a minister of sport. I think Grant Robinson's still our minister. Yep. Um, but a large policy that's been underlying in New Zealand for a long time is is one of um, of, of Kiwis winning medals to inspire other Kiwis. Um, do you have any views on that as a as a broad general policy?
1: Um. Yes. Um my own personal view is i think that, that in some in some instances and in some sports we have been too focused on this idea of medals being the most important thing for either funding or for participation in say say the olympics right yeah. <laughs> But it's a it's it's a complicated issue because you know there are two things. It's not just that funding question. It's also the, the selection issue. So, what a lot of people may not realise is for you to make the New Zealand Olympic team. Not there. There needs to be not only a space available at the Olympic Games for you, which you may have even generated yourself by going overseas and perhaps winning a qualifying tournament or something like that. Um, but you also have to meet the New Zealand Olympic Committee standards for being a member of the team, which generally speaking is you need to be capable of a top six, 16 performance. So so you yeah. might be the 30th ranked archer in the world, for example, which is a pretty phenomenal mm. achievement.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and you might well have qualified a spot at the Olympics, but because you're not capable of finishing in the top 16 or likely to finish in the top 16, you're unlikely to be picked for the New Zealand little Olympic mm. team. And, you know, I think that's a shame And because because you know for the archery community in New Zealand yeah. having an archer appear at the Olympic games and i've just picked archery as a sport you might pick another sport like fencing right where this literally happened a couple of olympic cycles ago yeah. where there was a fencer who you know was was top 32 in the world but not top 16 and accordingly um, didn't make the criteria to go to the Olympic Games. Now, imagine if she had gone to the Olympic Games mm-hmm. and the New Zealand fencing community and all the schools and stuff had seen a New Zealander competing at the Olympics in fencing. Yeah. Right, That, I think, achieves a lot of what we're trying to achieve by by Government support of sport. Um, so look, this is a debate that happens all the time, and um, and there's a lot of changes going on around sport and high performance sport in New Zealand uh, at the moment, in um, both structural and I'm assuming policy based as well. You know, Sport New Zealand now. Um, Rayland Castles come back to New Zealand to run Sport New Zealand. Rayland's a phenomenal yeah. um, administrator, passionate about sport. Uh, deeply, has deep integrity and uh, in, genuinely engages with people, um, she gets it. She's a great, she's honestly, she, she, she's a great person to be leading that organisation. So we'll we, look, we might see some changes around that at the high performance level in terms of funding mm-hmm. and selection. Maybe we won't. Because um, uh, of course, on the flip side, we don't want people just... Going for the sake of making up the numbers is is our, is our sort of philosophy, either right? So you got to get a balance there. The balance that NZOC has now consistently struck for the Olympics for a number of cycles now is top sixteen. Some sports some sports set higher expectations. So I've acted for and, and look, you know, I'm not entirely objective about this, Chris. I've acted yeah. for a number of athletes, um, either. For athletes who have missed out on selection when they've sat outside perhaps that top 16 or it's been debatable whether they're in the top 16. And I feel for those athletes really strongly and I feel for their sports when the sports have wanted them to go. Oftentimes the sports take it in the neck because people think it's the sport that's not selecting them, but it oftentimes isn't. The sport might have put them up for selection and then they've been turned down by the NCOC. Um, but at the same time, I've also acted for um, sports uh, um, federations or organisations or national sporting organisations, um, who have had athletes saying, "Oh, we really want to go to the, we, we think we should be going to the Olympics." In circumstances where they just haven't got the performance necessary to show that they're going to that they're going to go well, and it's a good investment. So, look, it's a balance. Whether we're get, getting the balance right is a debate. I think we'll continue to have.
0: Yeah, and I think if we if we look at it and say that the poli- policy objective is to inspire New, New Zealanders, um, and and the, the I guess the the measure, the objective measure that they're looking at, um, in my view, is quite simplistic. To say, you know, medal, you know, being a medalist, Olympics, World Cup, um, uh, World Champs, type status, because not all sports are even. And um, uh, you know, for example, the the the, the cost of uh, sending a, a cyclist uh, around the world is significantly less than the cost of sending a rugby team or a football team but you know team sports generally because of our isolation you know we're the further furtherest country away from from everywhere and um and, and it, it it's super expensive so it's hard to to find the funding to to move around yep and yeah. you've
1: also got to have you also got to have fair ruled across sport right so if i'm a competitive rower mm-hmm. right and i'm and I'm maybe ranked 24th in the world and comfortably top 20 but not comfortably top 16 but we make an exception for the fencer or the archer mm. who's you know ranked in the 30s perhaps but because their sports you know, needs a bit of a boost we see in them, but we don't see in me. Then there becomes that unfairness then between sports too. So look, yeah. I can understand. I, look, I understand the top sixteen criteria, and I understand the funding models yeah. um, around, um, for particularly the Olympic sports we're talking about um, yeah. around Olympic performance. Um, do I think it's perfect? No. Um, have I got a better idea? Probably not. <laughs> so you know, look, I just think it's something we just needed to continually debate and evolve.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'll jump in with with a sport. I'm a little bit biased in basketball. I mean, so so New Zealand in 2002 um, ended fourth in the World Champs. I mean, exceptional outcome for a nation like New Zealand because basketball is a massive global sport. Yeah. Um, you know and. Look, the reality is uh, beating the United States um, or or even beating our nearest neighbors, Australia, is is often a big ask. Correct. But if we go back to inspiring New Zealanders, um, uh, you know, I did my own a few years ago little informal survey with a bunch of school kids about naming at New Zealand Athletes. And uh, and I did ask, and I won't mention the sports, but these are gold medalist Olympic gold medaling sports. Won't mention what they are. If these bunch of school kids could name any of these athletes, and and none of them could. And then I said to them, well, you know, can you name a basketball player? Now they all went Steve Adams. Okay, and in fact, probably it was a little bit unfair. I was asking a kid who had a uh, you know Oklahoma City top on and um, with Adams on it. So. You know, Steve Adams has done a lot for inspiring New Zealanders, but he's never played in our national team. And New Zealand's never going to win a a world championship. Well, we're not in the foreseeable future anyway because of the way in which the sport is set up. But it's still important to Kiwi kids who are coming through, and they're, the one, they're our future, they're the ones we want to develop, and, and all the good things that come with sport, even if they don't become elite athletes, it doesn't matter. If they enjoy the sport and they get a lot out of it, then they're going to be better people. And that's what we want. Um, so it's, you know, it's individuals like, oh, this isn't a plug for Steve Adams. I'm just using him as an example.
1: Um, you could have a Steve Adams. You could have a Lydia Co., exactly. You could have, yeah. you know, any one of a number yeah. of those sort of high profile, um, you know, Really want to get into a debate about it. Um, mm. What about Scott Dixon and then mm. motorsport? And where, motor- and where does motorsport stand in all of this? Yeah. Um, mm. uh,
0: and, and 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 look at a, a career um, that he's had. I mean, the money that he's generated through through that um, is just. Phenomenal.
1: So, look, I think, you know, look, it's healthy, isn't it, for us to Mm. to be having all of these debates around things like funding and participation and selection and schemes. And, Mm. you know, and as a sports lawyer, for me, and particularly as an advocate sports lawyer, right, so I don't do a lot of... of work in the sort of contracting mm-hmm. space, occasionally I get involved in the preparation of contracts and so forth for particular mm-hmm. sports or in particular sets of circumstances. I'm doing some work at the moment in motorsport in that space, which I'm really enjoying, mm-hmm. and it's a privilege to do. But by and large, I'm actually advocating clients' positions. So, look, I can sit here and argue both sides of mm-hmm. this debate. I'm pleased, pleased others can too, and I think you know, you know, that'll continue to evolve.
0: All right, now let's move on to an area in which sports lawyers can really get into being a real lawyer, um, and that is around dispute resolution. We'll just start off with one area, and, and that is matters that come before the sports tribunal. Um, and we'll talk about the New Zealand sports tribunal as opposed to the Australian national sports tribunal because it's an area that you and I are more familiar with. Um, what sort of matters does the New Zealand sports tribunal deal with? What, what, what turns up on, on, its, on its plate?
1: So the Sports Tribunal of New Zealand is a statutory body um, that was really created around the time that we got serious about doping in sport. So it's one of its tasks is to ha- hold anti-doping uh, violation hearings um, in relation to all of the sports that have effectively to submit their jurisdiction to, um, to WADA and to the Sports Tribunal uh, in New Zealand. Um, which is almost all sports. So if there's an anti-doping violation alleged against an athlete in New Zealand, it'll almost inevitably end up before the Sports Tribunal of New Zealand. There's a couple of exceptions. Rugby, for example, uh, has its own independent tribunals but that effectively operate in the same way. So that's one area that the Sports Tribunal gets involved in, which is anti-doping matters. Um, Selection disputes. So, most again, most New Zealand sports would ultimately submit to the jurisdiction of the tribunal to deal with selection disputes. So if an athlete misses out, that's where it goes. And then the third um, type of dispute that the tribunal will hear is effectively any other sports disputes where the parties agree um, to the jurisdiction of the tribunal resolving it. And the idea Mm. behind that when the tribunal was set up was to avoid us having to go off to the high court to judicially review everything Mm. in a sporting context where that was sort of not quite – round peg, square hole, but not far off it, right? Yeah. Um, so instead it was like, well, let's set up the tribunal and the tribunal can deal with those matters.
0: Yeah, so um, when there is a sporting-related dispute in a sport that's signed up, usually it's the National Federation that's signed up, which then binds you know, down that cascading, as you say, uh, structure. Um, when that dispute hasn't been able to be resolved internally within the sport... And, and and most and I'm gonna I'm gonna say 95% of disputes, if not more, are resolved internally. There are a small percentage may end up in the in the sports tribunal as a forum that's that's better structured, fit for purpose for dealing with sporting matters rather than going off to the high court. Great. Um, uh, on a judicial review and, and all of the cost and delays and processes with that, because the sports tribunal, in your experience, uh, how does it operate?
1: So, the tribunal has a chair and deputy chair who, who are oftentimes former judges um uh but certainly senior senior lawyers mm-hmm. uh, and then there is a a set of members um of the tribunal, which are former athletes coaches administrators, some of them lawyers, some of them not mm-hmm. uh, and the tribunal will generally sit as a panel of three, so either the chair. Or one of the two de- deputy chairs will chair each panel with two members joining him or her. Um, and then the tribunal it operates in a sort of quasi-judicial fashion, right? So you'll have an initial conference. There's paperwork that gets filed by both sides at the beginning of whatever the dispute is, whether it's a doping violation, a selection dispute, or a broader dispute. Uh, and then the tribunal will generally convene a sort of management conference, case management conference of, of sorts, um, where know, timetable and is there any need for disclosure or discovery and what are we doing about filing of evidence and, you know, can we refine exactly what the issues are. Occasionally, the tribunal now drops into a sort of quasi-mediation judicial settlement type um, role with the consent of the parties. Um, uh, I I embrace that. I think that's a good thing. I've had a couple of cases, particularly where things are urgent. Um, selection disputes are often critically urgent. You'll get a athlete who's been not been named to a team that's due to go in a week or two weeks' time. Yeah,
0: the plane is literally uh, fueling up on the tarmac. Yeah, you haven't got time
1: <laughs> to go through six weeks of judicial yeah. process to get a res- resolution to that, right? So, so that's so that's that. Um, and of course, now alongside the Sports Tribunal. We, Sport New Zealand now fund the Sport and Recreation Complaints and Mediation Service, the SRCMS, um, and that is now a service where disputes in sport or complaints in sport can go to to either be investigated or mediated. Um, which actually is also proving to be an excellent, excellent service.
0: It's a great model um, having mediation available, particularly as a like on a triage basis to deal with something quite early on. Um, it'll deal with a lot of the disputes and get them resolved by agreement the party certainty of outcome. And
1: yeah. yeah. And I, I sort of reflect on a case that came across my desk a few years ago. Now I, I, as well as representing sports organizations and athletes, I occasionally sit as a judicial officer. And on this occasion, I was sitting as a judicial officer in a sport um, where there was a dispute between two clubs effectively. And I gave a ruling uh, in a very black and white sort of ruling fashion, it then went off to the tribunal, the sports tribunal. I actually got overturned, um, which was sort of you know quite confronting, mm. um, uh, and and probably and look incorrectly so. Um, there were certain aspects that we hadn't taken into account. Um, because the parties hadn't put them in front of us is essentially mm-hmm. the situation. But from a natural justice perspective, they were important, and it, it mean we, we didn't deal with them, and the tribunal did deal with them and said, well, look, taking to, to those accounts, I think Mr Lloyd's panel got it wrong, and we need to overturn them and, and make a decision. Now, the reason I reflect on that one is because actually that from the get-go probably was a dispute that would have benefited from mediation. Mm. And then you wouldn't have had this very sort of black and white application of rules scenario where when the parties didn't put everything in front of the first panel, the first panel reaches one conclusion, and then when everything goes in front of the second panel or more information goes in front of the second panel, they reach a different conclusion. And it just became a very imposed outcome regime in a set of circumstances where often times you don't want an imposed outcome. What you really want is the parties to reach agreement on where they go to. So, And and more so at the um, club and community level than at the elite level, right? Mm. At a club and community level, you're all there with a common purpose. You're all there because you love your sport. You're all there because you want to run a good club to run your sport. If you're having a dispute inside your club, really, you should be trying to resolve it Collect- collaboratively rather than going off to get someone to tell you what to do. Um, and that's mm-hmm. why I think mediation and sport as a growing area is, is an absolute godsend.
0: Yeah. Look, I mean, I, I, th- I think, um, God, I've probably said this a million times. Uh, that's an exaggeration by the way. Look, disputes are inherently corrosive. Um, you know, I never hear anyone say, I really enjoyed that dispute. I'm looking forward to the next one. Um, and whenever, often with sport in New Zealand, a large part of it's a group of volunteers. They all mean well. they all got best intentions. Um, but it can be a massive distraction. So I'm, I'm with you. Early resolution uh, via mediation would great. Great uh, way in which to, to work through some of the tough issues in sport. Okay, so sport, New Zealand Sports Tribunal um, uh, here in New Zealand, the uh, the, you know, the Australian equivalent being National Sports Tribunal. Um, adverse outcome, someone decides they're not happy with it. What can they do?
1: Um, well, oftentimes the sort of, the default appeal position out of the Sports Tribunal in New Zealand will, will mm-hmm. be to the Court of Arbitration for Sport mm-hmm. um, as it, Uh, often gets referred to, um, which is seated, it's an arbitral tribunal, or it's an arbitral body, sorry, Mm -hmm. um, uh, with its seat in Switzerland, so it Mm -hmm. operates under Swiss law. Um, but going to CAS doesn't mean you go to Switzerland, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it ha- it's has not re- like a trip to uh,
0: London no, for the Privy Council. No,
1: it's not. <laughs> it, has, um, it has regional bodies. It yeah. has regional seats. Uh, CAS regional seat generally here is Sydney, but even then oftentimes if we have a CAS hearing, we'll just do it either remotely or we'll do it here in Auckland mm. um, or occasionally it'll be it'll be held held overseas. But um, essentially CAS becomes the default um, appeal body out of the Sports Tribunal,
0: and um, look again, not doing a massive plug for for David Williams, um, who's probably uh, one of New Zealand's um, most successful, um, very capable arbitrators. He has uh, has sat um, with Cass as as an arbitrator, and he was a, uh, a in the High Court, uh, resigned from there to, to pursue arbitration. Uh, a colleague of mine at the Victorian Bar, uh, Ali Madeline, has just recently been appointed to. To the Court of Arbitration and Sports. So, you know, they you know, you're getting a really high caliber of arbitrator sitting in there. And there's three of them. Um Great. sitting there as a panel. Uh so the, the the judgments generally, I mean, I'm sure anyone who's who's had an adverse judgment possibly didn't agree with it and felt it was the right outcome. But certainly from my perspective, keen to hear yours, I mean, you you're getting really good quality judgments are uh, determinations out of the oh, case
1: un- unquestionably um yeah look look like all all decision making bodies right sometimes you think they get it right and sometimes you think they get it wrong mm. um there's a saying you know you know when you get to your highest uh decision making body whether it's cares mm. or whether it's the supreme court or whether it's the privy council you know there's a saying they're not final cuz they're right they're right cuz they're final mm. um and, and so, look, you're always going to have a situation where if you lose a case you genuinely believe in, um, you're going to feel that you've got the wrong end of the stick. But in my experience, uh, both with the tribunal, um, win or lose, mm-hmm. uh, and with CAS, win or lose, um, I've always had an experience where I thought that my client got a fair hearing, it was well-considered. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, you know, that's true of all of the sporting bodies that I, decision-making bodies that I deal with, um, I've got to say. And and look, Kaz, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, another, you know, Tim Castle, um, whom you probably know, yeah. very, very experienced barrister out of Wellington, been in the sports world, um, representing athletes and organisations on and off for a very long time. You know, Tim's on the Kaz panel you know, and that just shows the sort of calibre, right? Tim's a very, you know, he's he's a very, very senior, very experienced, very capable sports lawyer. So not just lawyer, but sports lawyer, understands the sporting context, has lived in the sporting world for a long, long time. And it's that kind of calibre. We have judges. My um, had a CAS panel hearing a few years ago where the chair was a federal court judge out of Australia. Mm. Right, So, um uh, and a very senior federal court judge out of Australia, and she was excellent. And um, so, yeah, look, I think you know the CAS is sort of where, where you might ultimately get to, uh, but again, it can be time consuming, it can be costly, um, uh, and again, you know, oftentimes the tribunal acts as an alternative to that. But if you if you need to go there, you go there. But you know, mm-hmm. probably not.
0: So a large part of uh, the Sports Tribunal and, and Cas's work is around uh, anti-doping. So there's the uh, Wo- World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA. Um, w- what is it? What it, What's its mandate? What does it do?
1: So again, WADA, international organisation which all countries um, who want to implement anti-doping regimes in accordance with what has become the international norm have signed up to. mm Um, and every country will then have a national anti-doping agency. In New Zealand, that's Drug-Free Sport New Zealand. In Australia, it's ASADA, the um, Australian Sports Anti-Doping Agency. Um, And WADA sets the rules, right? So they set the international code around... What behaviour is acceptable and unacceptable from an anti-doping perspective? So, what behaviour constitutes an anti-doping rule violation or an ADRV? Um, and the other thing that WADA publish every year is the prohibited list, which is the prohibited list of substances and methods um, that if an athlete participates, uh, you know, can takes any of those substances or partic- uh, or performs any of those methods, you know, methods are things like blood doping, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, um, then they're in breach of the code. But the code's quite, um, you know, it's now become the universally accepted standard for uh, doping integrity in world sport. And so much so that when signatory nations breach the code, and Russia is the most pro- prominent example. I'm sure many of your listeners have seen the I- Icarus documentary or read the book about Rodchenkov. Um, if you haven't, go and see the document, go and watch the documentary. It's on Netflix. Um, Icarus is called, it's excellent. But that it, it, you know, it basically gives a catalogue of how the Russian Federation um, orchestrated an anti doping program, program to get around all of the international norms propagated at a, at a by state WADA level. at a state level. Yeah, right? Yeah. And so they get thrown out of international competition, and mm-hmm. so they should have. Um, um so that's wada right so wada is the international body that you know again similar structure to what we are talking about with sports organization international body member organizations from for, from the signatory countries um but that's at international politics level right so there's a new zealand new zealand the country signs on to it that then passes legislation in new zealand the sports anti doping um rules and act um to Um, create drug-free sport New Zealand to um, then create the tribunal to provide that jurisdiction. The the anti-doping rules in New Zealand are effectively um, regulations. under legislation.
0: Under our domestic re- legislation, Correct. our domestic laws, to to give effect to WADA's um, policy and their rules. Correct. Uh, and, and that's the way it is. So um, uh, with a drug-free sport, it's got two parts to it. There's an educational part where they try and educate athletes and, and those involved in sport because it's not just the athletes that need to be thinking about it, it's, it's the coaches... It's the administrators, Correct. it's the parents of some of the athletes, uh, it's, it's all of those, because um, the implications of of having a, a, a doping finding uh, can be quite serious in terms of suspension and, and banning from sport. Uh,
1: both at the athlete level and the organisation level, right? Yeah. So, um, so, oh, for sure. Um, you know, default bans under the Act are two years or four years and sometimes mm. for longer if you've got an organisation that has... Um, athletes, uh, particularly multiple athletes, get caught up in a doping scandal, then the damage to that organisation can be really severe. Um, Mm. But you're right. I mean, essentially, drug-free sport um, is too or three main functions, I mm. suppose, but two, really, education on one hand and then they're the regulator on the other hand, and right? And on the regulation, right, what do they do? Well, they do investigations and they mm. do enforcement. So, mm. um, you know, and look, um, there's a question at the moment around whether drug-free sport remains as a standalone organisation or whether it forms the core of a new sports integrity organisation overall mm. for New Zealand so that... Like uh, Australia has. Like Australia has. Yep. Um, so that... Uh, um, but... Drug-Free Sport New Zealand is one of the leading national anti-doping agencies in the world. Mm. Um, it was incredibly well run by under Graham Steele, who was there for a very long time. Nick Patterson, who has a very strong background in investigations and understands fraud and corruption and stuff like that is from, his, from his previous private practice mm. background, is now running the organisation. Um, they do a phenomenally good job. And they're not just about policing the athlete. They take the education... Um, role incredibly seriously and, and they are constantly coming up with new ways to communicate with athletes, be it new mediums, be it new language to use, uh, getting other athletes to promote uh, anti-doping messages and talking about it. It's a really proactive, um, meaningful, pragmatic engagement by DFSNZ on the topic. Yeah,
0: but for, for this to work, and, and, and look, when I say this, what I'm talking about is to have – um, fair, clean sport. Yeah, it, it's it's great having drug free sport. You know, being uh, you know well staffed, well resourced, and, and doing a lot of good work. Um, but that that's only part of the solution. Um, there has to be buy-in for all of the other participants in sport, because um, uh, you know there are going to be pressures on some athletes where where they may look at cheating. And and then there's also the the what I call sort of the innocent WADA rules violation or the the one where um, the athlete didn't realise what they were doing was wrong, but they will still be punished accordingly because it's a a strict liability scenario. You are responsible for what goes in your body.
1: Correct. I mean, oftentimes, look, the starting point is education, actually. It is the silver Mm -hmm. bullet um, Mm -hmm. because... You know, if you think about, if you look at all of the cases of anti-doping violations in New Zealand, they are either athletes who have deliberately violated, in which case th- there is a clear intention there. They know the rules. They know they're not entitled to do it, but they go ahead and do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Education is still a weapon in dealing with those, that typology of offending because yeah. if you can get at- athletes early enough... To explain to them that they will be caught, that these dope, that, that anti-doping, so that doping causes physical harm in a lot mm-hmm. of instances. Um, if you can dissuade the athlete who's intending to do it through education, education is the silver bullet in that regard. Mm-hmm. And then you get the cases. Um, of inadvertent mm. doping perhaps um, uh, and they can be any one of a range of things. I took supplements that I didn't properly check. I used my asthma inhaler too much although I've got to mm. say you've got to use it a heck of a lot to, to do an anti-doping violation for mm. asthma inhalers. I was at a party on a Saturday night and I was a bit drunk and I popped a pill that I shouldn't have and I was too, too embarrassed to, to deal with it and then it shows up in a drug test on a Monday or a Wednesday or a, or a Saturday. You know, there's all of these things where if you educate the athletes from an early age around it, you will actually um, create the most avoidance you can from an ultimate outcome. You're not, It won't be 100%. There are always going to be people who are going to be hell-bent on doing things or uh you know, something falls through the crack. But Mm. education's got to be the starting point. And because of that, you know, we we have the best starting point with a well-funded DFSNZ. But your Mm. principal's right, I agree. I mean, if I was, if I was, and I do, go out and talk to sports administrators, CEOs, boards of directors, Mm. one of the things I'll say to them is, what are your risks in your organization boards yeah. are a classic example right like i'm i'm privileged enough to go and speak to sporting boards and say to them you guys are the governors of this organization one of your jobs in being a governor of this organization is to understand the risks to your organization integrity risks are one of some of the biggest risks you're going to have what are the risks of you having a scandal and yeah. doping uh, maybe match fixing uh, maybe athlete welfare yeah. Um, and that scandal creating brand damage to your organization. Well, as a governor, you should be doing everything you can to make sure that your management team are taking steps to avoid those things happening, and that's where the buy-in you're talking about Mm. um, needs to come in. Yeah, And then those sports organisations need to invest some time and resource into making sure that they're taking protective measures to try and avoid these things from happening.
0: Or or even um, ask, you know, further up the organisational structure, you know, what resources are there that I can acquire to help um, with the delivery of of education? Because there are a lot of resources that are out there. Now, have you come across... Look, the misconception that some people have that, look, you know, WADA and anti-doping rules, these violations, they only apply to professionals um, or international athletes. Have you, have you come across that misconception?
1: Uh, yep, and it is a misconception. The reality is anyone who's paying, playing organised sport um uh, where that sport is ultimately a signatory to the WADA code, mm-hmm. whether you're playing it at an at a elite, sub-elite, or purely recreational level, mm-hmm. the WADA anti-doping code and the sports anti-doping rules in New Zealand apply to you. Mm-hmm. And we've had cases, um, Chris, through the tribunal where this has occurred. There was one where there was a, um, a a chap, I think it was, I forget the precise details, I didn't act on it, but was involved in one sport uh, participating at an event, I think it might have been a cycling event where they got dope tested, um, but but they were actually a golfing, they were a member of a golf club, mm. right? Just a recreational yep. member of a golf club. I don't know if you're a golfer. I'm yep. a golfer. Yep. I'm a recreational member. I'm hopeless at it. I'm <laughs> hopeless at it too, but I still do it. Um, <laughs> I, but I'm a member of a golfing club. I, yeah. I, I'm I'm bound by the water code. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's it's um, it's, it's the
0: fact that you're a member of, a sporting organisation
1: that is ultimately a signatory. Drag, that's
0: Correct. ultimately a signatory drags you in, yep. and, and and whether you actually ever go and
1: play golf at all. Correct. Now, yeah. now, um, one of the th- one of the things that has improved in the last, I'd say, five years in the anti-doping world is we yeah. are starting to delineate a little bit more between recreational athletes and elite athletes, and in particular, um, this seems to be a sort of more common sense approach around. You know, dealing with recreational athletes and, and not necessarily the same severity as we deal with professional athletes, yeah. um, but nonetheless the principle remains and and let's let's be frank about it at a policy level this is a personal view this is my view only mm-hmm. but at a at a at a policy level i don 't really want to see a whole lot of government funding if going into the policing of anti-doping at sub-elite recreational levels, really, um, because actually that's not, I think that, that we, we need that at the higher levels of sport where mm. it actually sort of matters more. More From a social point of view, of course it matters, and of course we want to be discouraging um, people from from doping at the lower recreational levels. Mm. But again, you can deal with that. You deal with that by education. If some... You know, hack golfer like me thinks that if I take some kind of anti-doping supplement, which I'm ed- educated is banned because it's going to improve me in my recreational golfing that no one else cares about but me, let's be frank. Yeah. Um, well, that's sort of, I, I'm not sure at, at a personal level whether I really want drug-free sport spending their resources chasing that kind of thing down. If they catch it along the way, then by all means deal with it, right? And, and the big um, spate of anti-doping cases we, we had in the last sort of five or six years now um, have, have come to an end was the clenbuterol cases. So there was a website selling clenbuterol online, a a um, multi-regulatory investigation involving customs, Mm. New Zealand customs for policing uh, the importation of stuff at the border Mm. um, and drug-free sport and others led to drug-free sport being given a very, very long list Mm. of club-level athletes in New Zealand that had been buying... Um, uh, clembuterol, a prohibited substance online Mm -hmm. and they turned around and proceeded to prosecute a number of those a large, large number of those athletes at club level And, and look, that probably forced a bit of a dialogue actually around are we really getting the proportionate response right um, around anti-doping violations at sub-elite levels? Um, and again, you know, like like all things, it's not a black and white issue, right? Do yeah. I do I want to say let, let's not police anti-doping at club level at all? No, because then what's going to happen is, you know, you know, those who are minded to dope. Sorry, those who are minded not to dope only because they are worried about getting caught will all of a sudden start doping. So you've got to strike it up. And for a lot of people, the highest level of sport they'll play will be at whatever level that is. And if they are the kind of person who will do anything it takes to get an advantage, even if it's at a level that the rest of us sort of go... Well, why does that matter at such a low level? Yep. and they will do so. Look, you know, we've got to get that. We've got to get that right. But drug-free sport doesn't have infinite resources, and I would like to see. And I think it's a good thing that it appears to be that they're spending more of their time focusing on violations at sort of sub elite and elite level rather than the community.
0: Now, you mentioned um, um, online. You know, the clubberryl and the online purchases. Um, <clears throat> and 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 also, you also mentioned, look, you know you're a golfer, and you know you know go and get some sort of advantage at a, at a at a at a sub elite level you know et cetera um because the way in which the rules do operate is um you could be acquiring um a prohibited substance on the waDA list you may have just recently been put up, but you're not checking the list every day <laughs> scenario. Um, For some unrelated uh, issue, it might be a medical issue. Maybe it's because, you know, you want something that's going to make your hair grow, you know, thicker or better or uh, et cetera. So it's not designed or the intention's not designed. To uh, get an advantage in sport, you didn't even think about it for that reason, but you just didn't know that it was a prohibited substance. You ordered something online, it, it, it went through the post. It had about seventy different um, ingredients in it, but one of them was prohibited. But bang, there's a there's a ban for for two years. Correct. Um, and if picked up at at, at customs. Referred through to um, uh, because it's a medicines issue.
1: Potentially other issues for you know,
0: potentially other issues. Uh, um, and look, um, yeah. and look,
1: Chris. <laughs> but that's why the, the, there needs to be a distinction between are you a serious athlete or are you not? Right? Because if for for and, and, and luckily pragmatism actually rules mm. here because mm. the reality is you recreational club golfer. Um, if they yeah, and accidentally breach the WADA list because they're yeah. taking something for their you know, hair growth or something like that yeah. it probably doesn't matter because one it actually doesn't matter in, yeah. in, in terms of substantively but two they're probably not going to be subject to any kind of testing or anything like that right it's only going to be in the rarest of occasions that they get caught up in some kind of thing right and if they yeah. do then we now deal with that in a more proportionate way than perhaps what we dealt with five years ago but w- what it highlights is this though right if you are in any way Shape or form serious about your sport at any kind of level, um, you should be familiar with what is allowed and what's not allowed and you should be familiar with what you are putting into your body and that's a fundamental rule in sports anti-doping even, even if you're a athlete... professional
0: Slovak tennis player yeah well special, <laughs> with special...
1: three three doctors yeah correct right so we have a we have a we have a presumption that the athlete is responsible for what goes into his or her body yeah. and and look will you rely on the advice of mm. others sure and there are provisions in the code in the WADA code and translated into the anti-doping rules in New Zealand that say, you know, did you take reasonable steps to ensure that you didn't dope? Now, a reasonable step isn't just following the advice of someone. If actually a, a, a quick check yourself could have shown there was a problem, but you know, the, the one message I would send out to all athletes or parents mm. of aspiring athletes, um, particularly at high school, senior high school level, yeah, because
0: a four-year ban is, is is their career over.
1: Yeah, I acted for a. Yeah. I acted a number of years ago. Now I acted for a, um, a rugby player who at the age of 18 and his mates one night decide, decided it would be a bit of a lark to see if they, if they could order some human growth hormone over mm. the internet and see if it would actually arrive, right? Yeah. No intention to use it, um, and I believe that. Um, no, you, you, you know, no tools to use it. Mm. So literally orders a vial of human growth hormone over yeah. the internet. Fast forward to the end of that case, a very talented young athlete, leaving high school with the world at his feet in terms of potential to go and play, you know, cult level and then mm-hmm. senior level rugby gets a four-year ban. Yeah, right and, that, and that's
0: because that's an attempt. Co- correct. Okay, and that's a violation in itself. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, correct. You, so it's not just the issue of so – These guys thought resp- it was a joke. Yeah. It yeah.
1: wasn't a joke. It yeah. got treated very seriously and that player got banned for for, yeah. for um, four years. Now, um, now, so the message really is this. If you're an athlete mm. and you're taking anything – supplements, food, whatever you're doing. Or just buying cr- anything. Or buying anything. Just yeah. be cr- super careful about yeah. what you do. Check the water lists. Um, buy from reputable companies. Um, if you feel the need to take supplements, um, I d- I do some research around whether those supplement companies batch test their products um, for compliance. Um, buy from only you know, reputable companies. Um, supplement companies and organisations. When I could talk on this topic for hours, and particularly Mm -hmm. at the organisational level, um, one of the things that I um, really enjoy doing is working with organisations to make sure that their processes around their supplement programmes, their training programmes and all that sort of stuff are robust such that they um, are minimising the risk of an anti-doping violation. Because if you can achieve that, you're really at the top of the cliff. Helping them prevent a fall, not at the bottom of the cliff. Helping them clean it up.
0: Oh, absolutely! That's super good advice. That um, I, I just think that that's just spot on. Let's um, let's stay with integrity uh, and move on to just sort of two other areas fairly quickly before we uh, we wrap up. This has been a been a fantastic uh, discussion. Um, talk about max match fixing and and sports wagering uh, as an integrity issue. How, do, how does that fit in with our with our, our laws?
1: Um, So New Zealand has recently, USA recently, in the last few years passed an amendment to the Crimes Act to to specifically record that the fixing of sports events is a criminal offence under our Crimes Act, so in the broader fraud um, offences, and that's consistent with an international pattern, Um, Mm. the Australians have criminalised it as well specifically. It's really just tidying up the debate of would it have been captured anyway, which it probably would have, and it's just a, a legislative confirmation that it is a criminal offence. Um, it's a, you know, look, doping and um, and manipulation mm-hmm. um, are the two of the biggest evils in sport, right? Yeah. Because, you know, why do we love, you, you asked me right at the beginning of the conversation, why do we, you know, why is sport so important? And it's mm-hmm. important because people love what it brings to them into their lives. Mm. And part of it, the drama, right? Like mm. now when I go and watch a movie, I, I know that it's a scripted event, right? Yeah. And that's okay because it's still telling me a story. It's the value of the movie. Isn't, yeah. uh, isn't undermined by the scripted nature of it, right? Mm. But sports different, right? The value of sport is undermined if you know that it's scripted, right? If I go to watch a, you know, look, I'm a, I'm a football fan, right? Mm. I'm an Everton fan um, and have been for a long time. It's a hard time at the moment, right? The other day, I um, watched the game against Brighton. By all accounts, we should have lost it. We turned around and we lost, and we won at five one, right? Mm. It's that unpredictability. It's the it's the long volley in in tennis that's the, that's ended by a incredible backhand shot to the corner. Mm. It's the it's the um, footballer running through a field of his opponent's drib with, with, you know, on the ball and, and scoring the impeccable goal in the corner. It's the cricketer hitting five sixes in an over to win uh, a game at the death. It's, it's that drama and unpredictability of sport that's so important. Mm. Match fixing destroys that, mm. right? Um, doping destroys the even playing field. Uh, and and creates the moral hazards for our young people that we don't want people getting into. You know, those are why those two things are evil in sport, and it's why we need to, as a sporting community, um, be serious about really enforcing our standards around doping and our standards around match manipulation. Mm. And you know what? Let's just, you know, no one needs to go and gamble, right? So... Having a ban around athletes gambling, having a ban around them sharing information, those things are some sort of obvious and fundamental protections that we need to do to try and prevent sport being manipulated, um, both by the athletes but by people outside as well. So, look, I'm you know, I've been involved in a couple of cases around match-fixing. Uh, um, 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 one I'm on publicly on the record for is the Chris Cairns allegations when Chris was alleged to have match-fixed posters winning a defamation t- trial for successful defamation trial in England yeah. around those allegations. Um, I've seen um, um, firsthand, if you like, um, e- examples of corruption in sport um, Chris was acquitted. I think, right, rightfully so. That's a debate that people will no doubt have for a long, long time. But I have a, a very firm belief in not just uh, um, Chris not being found not guilty, but actually his innocence in, 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 in that. Um, but nonetheless, what it did open for me was a window into a sport, in that case, cricket, where there is corruption in cricket, yeah. in particular, in other parts of the world, and becoming more sophisticated. And it's deeply unpleasant. Yeah, yeah it's it is. deeply unpleasant, and. And again, I can only speak at a personal level, but I lost my love of cricket for a while because of what I knew about what was going on in cricket in parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got it back. Yeah, I I'm love glad. It. I've got yeah, it back. I good. love it. Yeah. But corruption in sport destroys value. Mm. Um, and it destroys value not just for the athletes and the organisations, but it destroys value for the public, for me and you. For all of the participants. Yeah. I, yeah. I cannot imagine going to a sports event and still being passionate about it if I knew, even if I didn't know what the fixed outcome mm. was, but if I knew that the, the outcome was fixed, it takes away the genuineness of it, the drama of it, mm. the beauty of the upset, um, all of that. Yeah, yeah.
0: And um, look, you know, tough time for for Warriors fans, and, um, and, and of course, you know, uh, you know, we talked about refereeing and the importance of that. I we'll probably won't get into too much detail on that topic, but let's move integrity-wise into one final area, which which is which is one that's incredibly important to me, and it's a growing area, which I'm really pleased about. That attention's being put on it, and it's safeguarding. Yeah. Um. You know, we, we, where are we? Where are we going with safeguarding? You no, know, well, actually, what is it? Let us t- tell the listeners what it is.
1: Yeah. Okay. So safeguarding um, is is about the steps that sports take to ensure that the participants in that sport are protected.
0: And a safe. And a safe. Yeah. yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. And the most acute. Uh, and probably high-profile area of it mm. is the risk of child abuse
0: with with our young people. With our young yeah, people,
1: yeah, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so, so, so that's probably and you know we've got documentaries like Athlete Day and mm. and uh, yeah, some some really tragic stories. Um, both overseas and sadly domestically as well, of young athletes who have been physically abused in the sport environment. Now, mm. sport's not unique in that regard. It mm. happens at schools. It happens in religious organisations. It happens in sporting organisations. Um, but we as a society, for a long time now, have said, we've always said that's not okay. We're now doing more about it. Mm. And in sport, part of that is about safeguarding.
0: Yeah, and education, and educate the role that education plays within that.
1: Correct. And yeah. it's not just about but it's not just about sexual abuse or Mm. avoiding sexual abuse Mm. it's also about um, bullying behaviors more generally and harassment harassment, um, uh, discrimination Mm. Um, and bullying. So, you know, safeguarding is is about athlete welfare Mm. and participant welfare, not just the athletes, by the way, also other participants in the Mm. sport. And it's about saying that, you know, threats to people's well-being and welfare, whether that's from discrimination, harassment, Mm. bullying, physical abuse, mental abuse, none of those things are okay. So Mm. safeguarding in a broad sense is about making sure that you've got you're doing your best you can as an organisation to be alive to those risks mm. and to have the right policies and processes in place to try and minimise those risks.
0: Look, um, look absolutely, Aaron. It's, um, unfortunately, there can be a bit of a grey line and, and having good uh, policies and, and clear procedures setting around that uh, helps give people some guidance that the line isn't so gray, that there is uh, there is above the line behavior and below the line behavior. I mean, I'll just use one example. And, and and while I think, you know, child, you know, school sport is is fabulous. I mean, it's a great spectacle to watch. You've got young people who are who are trying their hardest. You know, there's a bunch of volunteers giving them support, and the parents are all there, all wanting the best for their, their child, their team, et cetera. But some parents can take it a little bit too far um, with their enthusiasm; that really can detract from what sport is actually all about. Um, and, and I've seen some appalling examples uh, uh, over the years. Um, one piece of advice I remember giving some people once—you um, know, because I, I mean, you're a parent, aren't you? You've you, you've had to had to turn up on Saturday mornings <laughs> in the rain, yep. etc. All of that is, um, is, is that for and there's, there's been research done on this. Is that when children have been interviewed about what they get out of sport, okay, as such, and they list a whole lot of things like, "You know, I get to play with my mates," you know, um, you know "I get to feel good about myself," etc. And then they're asked about the things that they that they don't like about sport. Um, one of the things that sits really quite high, um, it's quite subtle, but it's quite important. As they as they as they as they talk about parents um uh yelling and screaming from the sideline, whether it's yelling at the referee, yelling at the other team, or even yelling at them, okay, it's just not a great, doesn't create a great experience for them. So the advice that I sometimes often give people is to say that the best thing a parent can ever say to a child is, I enjoyed watching you play. And and if you just leave it at that. The research says that that child will continue in that sport in most instances, and will have a positive outcome. And, and, that, and that's just one for me, one example of, but, of, but where, again, of where safeguarding can sure. play a
1: role. But again, yeah. you're coming back to education, right? Yeah. Because actually, yeah, instinctively, you know, look, I of all people am acutely aware of this, right? Mm-hmm. I referee school boy and girl and club rugby on weekends. Yeah. I often have some very vocal assistance. Um, from parents or from you know club supporters on the sidelines, mm-hmm. um, and I and I hate it. Right, I do my best mm-hmm. to block that out, and nine times out of ten I block it out. But occasionally you don't block it out entirely. Oftentimes, right? So I'm acutely mm-hmm. aware of the problem from my point of view, right? Let alone the mm-hmm. participant's point of view, and I get that and I see that. Mm-hmm. Yet if I go and stand on the sideline of my kid's uh, sport, um. I find myself with a tendency of wanting to comment and I find myself with a tendency of wanting to yell out, you know, uh, you know,
0: you know, alternative interpretations.
1: Correct. <laughs> so the instinct to do that is strong for yeah. people who are passionate about sport. sport right. Yeah. And, and we, we sort of joke about it, don't we, but how many times are we yelling at the TV when we're watching sport at home? Right. Mm. So, and of course in the, when I yell at the TV, I yell at some of my very good good friends who are are very senior referees in in, in sport at the TV Mm -hmm. in a way that I would never speak to them. Right? Why? Because mm. instinctively that's what I do. So that's about education and about reflection and about awareness Because mm. and, and, and about and, co-
0: and culture as well. Yeah, I c- think culture
1: c- plays correct. a big part in it. But nowadays, yeah. often, sometimes I think hockey do this, mm. rugby do this, uh, football does this. Yeah. You'll often show up, particularly at younger kids' events, mm. and there, there'll be a, a sandwich board on the sideline mm. That says that sets out some rules around uh, behaviour, mm. and the best ones are the ones that have very short messages. Right, right. This is not the World Cup.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, the kids are out there to enjoy themselves. Mm. They don't enjoy it when you're yelling.
0: Yeah, hundred
1: percent. Right, and if you can get those key messages out, um, that's really important. And then that's about building respect. Um, you know, again, respect. You yeah, just respect. Mm. People, if you have that as your mantra, you're going to go start there. And look, you said we wouldn't talk about it and we won't in any detail. But, you know, look, the Warriors uh, referee Mm. uh, debate criticism at the moment, right, is a really, Mm. I think, a really interesting and fascinating case study because, you know, on the one hand, you've got free speech uh, uh, questions around whether, you know, you don't want to chill people's commentary on a game. But at the same time, you must have respect for match officials. And to go out and suggest, as was initially suggested, mm. that match officials were cheating, that's a in- deliberate intention. Um, it's an attack that, on the
0: integrity of the sport. And, yeah. well, and it's
1: an attack yeah. on the, the integrity of those individuals. And mm. I know as a, uh albeit community-level match official The worst thing that someone could accuse me of doing is is if they genuinely were accusing me of favouring one team over the other because I know Mm -hmm. that, you know, when you're officiating a sport, you're focusing on the picture in front of you and oftentimes you don't even see the coloured jerseys, let alone think about who the teams are or who the Mm -hmm. players are, right? You're looking at the the thing. On the other hand, though, if... Match officials and I'm not endorsing or otherwise comments in relation to the NRL referees, but if they're getting stuff wrong, that that needs to be debated and it needs to be explored. And and, and oh, so well, look-
0: particularly when they're professionals, and there is a difference between a professional yep, referee but, and, correct, a, and, but, and an amateur. But at the yeah. same
1: time, you can't expect perfection, right? No. Because we don't expect perfection from players, right? When a player goes out and drops a ball, or you know, does a studs up tackle, or you know or dribble, you know, or um, you know commits a, a foul of some kind, we write that off as an incident and and you move on right and and but we're, we're terrible at allowing that, that same kind of leniency to match officials yeah. um, and we need so you know we've also got very selective memory one hundred percent
0: i mean we will we will yell at a, a, a at an adverse referee call. And we'll talk about it and debate it, possibly for weeks, months, even even years. And we're silent about
1: the ones that but, go in our team's but favour. Exactly, and yep.
0: that's 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 the point. But as long as it's look, at the end of the day. If the refereeing's bad, it's fine as long as it's not biased and it's balanced. (laughs) It's got to be – well, you know,
1: and maybe it isn't fine because we want to learn lessons and even as a match official, right? right? If I go and have a bad game as a match official, that's not okay. I mean, Mm. it's sort of – you know, the great scheme of things, it's not going to matter much. But uh, uh, what what do I want to do? I want to go, well, why did I – a bad game as a match official Mm. and what can I do to to try and do better next time Mm. but that's very different from anyone thinking that I've done something in a biased fashion or not so I've got Mm. a lot of sympathy I've I've got a huge amount of sympathy for the match officials who get targeted with those kinds of allegations Mm. and I I think that in sport generally speaking we come down hard on athletes who accuse match officials of being cheats Mm. Um, you know in rugby we've had some quite significant bans of athletes you know the one that comes to mind is Dylan Hartley I think got 12 Mm. weeks for calling a referee a cheat in a game, you know, and it was out for three months, right? Well, well, one of one Good. of,
0: one of, one of the, the the rugby league uh, professionals has just been released from uh, from prison after assaulting a a, a referee. So, yeah. you know, it's I mean, this is criminal behaviour. You know, when you go and assault another human being. So um, respect
1: you know. respect, Chris, is what it comes back to, right? You yeah. know, people should try and. Try and wind their passions down just a little bit, and be yeah. res- but be respectful. Um, but again, you know, th- this is another area in sport. I feel like a broken mm. record where you know, there are two sides to this debate. Mm. It's an important debate to have. We're having it, um, but for me, I just keep coming back to we need to do this respectfully.
0: Yeah, look, absolutely, and I and I think you know because we we started the topic. Oh, I was sort of towards the end here on safeguarding. And we, we'll end it up here. Um, uh, with children in particular, they learn from adults. That's where they're learning, and they're in, and sport um, offers them a great uh, way to learn great values about sportsmanship, okay, and what sportsmanship entails. Um, I haven't seen this in other sports. Uh, I was on the board for for a, a year or so for for softball New Zealand, uh, but I remember going to a, a softball match uh, with a bunch of kids. Oh, I think maybe they were ten or eleven. And at the end of the in end of the the game um uh each team took turns but they they went and did a did a cheer to 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 the opposition parents you know to the supporters of the opposition team and they sort of lined themselves up you know and and then did a did a cheer to the to the opposition It's um, a really good way to end the game um so that uh, all the participants felt that they were all celebrated for for that event. The game was over, the, the school was, w- was fixed. want to say fixed, it was, it was determined. Um, and, you know, I, I just I, I love seeing that building of sportsmanship. Oh, look, and we said, yeah, and we said it, sport.
1: when we see it at the professional level, right, yeah. you watch a game of Super Rugby in particular, mm. and at the end of the game, the players who have been spending 80 minutes, oftentimes more, mm. Uh, Physically bashing each other um, and trying to dominate each other and wanting to beat the other team, Mm. Um, the final whistle goes and the camaraderie that you see because they all play uh, the same sport and Mm. do the same thing is real and is genuine. Um, And um, we just, you know, that's, that's the beauty of sport.
0: Yep. And look, I go back to something you said right at the beginning about tribalism. Tribalism has a really important role in sport because of the competitive aspect of it, but it has to be moderated and put into context that, you know, while it's a competition, at the end of the day, we're all participants in a a beautiful game and, um, and, and that doesn't change. Fantastic. Aaron Lloyd thank you so much for joining me on the Law Down Under podcast. This has been a been a great uh, a great discussion. We have covered a, covered a lot. I think we could probably carry on for a couple more hours. <laughs> but I got to write out of memory on the uh, on 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 the memory card. So 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 let let let's let's wrap it up. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you again Aaron Lloyd sports
1: lawyer. You're welcome Chris. Thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-S-O-N dot C-O Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application, and the future of the law here down under.